and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Topaz Adizis is an Emmy Award-winning writer, director, and experienced design architect. And you may be wondering, what is an experienced design architect? Well, Topaz is currently the founder and executive director of an experienced design studio called The Skin Deep. And they produce incredible, heartwarming, thoughtful, emotional videos that you can find on YouTube. They're they're tremendous. They have over 1,200 videos on there that we will reference some of those videos in today's conversation. 
And I mentioned that experience design architect piece because at the beginning of this conversation, we talk about this concept that he created called the and. And the and is a series of cards that you can purchase. And there's 199 questions in these boxes. I'm actually holding them right now as I do this introduction. And these cards are really powerful and they have powerful questions that are meant to help build connection amongst human beings. So in the beginning of this conversation, we referenced the cards and how I might use them with people in my lives. So that's a little background on him, the skin deep, the and, but he, as I mentioned, also has played in this writer-director space. His works have been selected to Cannes, Sundance, IDFA, South uh, South by Southwest, and featured in New Yorker Magazine, Vanity Fair, and the New York Times. So he is certainly an artist at heart. He is someone who loves to document life. And then he has gone toward this space around bringing people together for connection. So at his core, Topaz is a deep thinker, a thoughtful guy who wants to make this world a little bit better than he found it. And I think that's going to come across in our conversation today. So I'm excited to share with you Topaz Adizas. Topaz, thanks for coming back on the podcast. For those that are are listening, you're probably like, wait a second, I haven't seen any episode with him. We recorded an amazing episode. And afterwards, I said to him, I was like, look, I understood everything. I thought it was awesome. I think the audio is good enough, but uh, there are some times where you went in and out. He had a pop filter on his microphone yeah. last time, and I think that was causing some issues. So as soon as he's, we stopped recording, he moved, removed the pop filter. I go, oh, there you are. Like, that's yeah. the audio. <laughs> and this is coming from a guy who has spent a career documenting people and content. And <laughs> sure enough, I think the artist in him said, oh, let's just redo it then. Let's Let's do it again. And I was like, you know what? I don't always want to redo it, but I'll take another hour with you. I'm in. So here same. we are. Here we are. And I think we're going to be able to create the same magic that we were able to last time. I feel pretty confident about that. And I think last time we both sort of walked away being like, oh, there's some similarities here between the two of us. <laughs> and I, I wonder about this as a similarity. So you sent me your, the cards, the and cards, which are spectacular. And selfishly, part of this conversation today is going to be about how we can utilize these cards in our family and in our relationships. And I, I noticed in the directions to the cards, and we'll get into what the cards are in today's mm-hmm. episode so that everybody's with us. But one of the directions basically says, if you don't want to answer a question, you don't have to, right? There's the safety piece. Like you're not going to have to speak on a theme that you don't want to, but you must stare at the other person that's asking the question for 10 seconds in the eyes. And I've read research about staring at people and, and silence. And I think the data shows that it's three seconds that create awkward silence. So now we have 10 seconds. Now we're looking at them in the eye as well, uh, or the eyes. Can you A, explain the cards a little bit so people have some context, and then B, go into the silence and staring into people's eyes and why you want to torture them in that in that way? <laughs> All right. Well, Brent, I'm just stoked to be able to be on again with you, man. It's really it a pleasure last time, and it's a pleasure again. Uh, the card games. We posted these videos, talk, people talking to each other. We can get into it. It's on YouTube and all that. You know? And our audience was going, this is amazing. I want to have these conversations. 
So we're great. So here's, we made these card games. We took 200 questions, put them in a box, different kinds of relationships. The one I sent you was kids. And then the other one was family, which you have. The thing about the 10, look, the number one thing is you can't corner somebody. If they have to answer it, they're going to be squirmy. They're going to lie. I mean, if they don't want to answer it, right? So giving people the freedom to walk away or not answer, not respond is really imperative so that you create the space for people to explore. So that's why you don't have to answer it if you don't want. That's the important rule. Now, we like to suggest that people earn the right to pass by looking at the other person in the eye for 10 seconds. And the reason is there's a lot said in the space between. We don't have to articulate everything, right, to feel everything. We don't have to articulate everything to feel everything. You're just taking the moment to be in the space, look at them, and they're thinking what you might answer that question. You're thinking what you might answer that question. Neither of you said anything, but you earn that spot. And that's actually what's really important to me is that are we creating the spaces in our relationships to sit in whatever emotions come up? And that's why I have that that rule. Now, of course, rules are meant to be broken, and we'll probably talk about the different ways you can play this game. Ultimately, it's offering you really interesting questions to explore the relationships in your life. So I think before we started recording last time, you asked me, who's your audience? And I said, I don't really know. And when I fired up this podcast, it was selfish. It was, hey, let me go learn from the topazes of the world and and get educated and and have great dialogue and conversation. And then I get to share it with people. Great. It's an exponential bonus. And so I'm going to go into selfish mode. Uh, I've got a vacation coming up. The first part of the vacation is with four of my closest friends. And then the second part of the vacation is with my entire family. So my brothers, my parents. So we'll find out who actually listens to the podcast based on if I hear from anybody. Um, (laughs) But, but walk me through how I can utilize this with friendships, with family. How do I set the container so that you said you don't want to trap anybody. You don't want to make them do something they don't want to do. Like coach me up on how do I set the container with my friends or my family to leverage these cards? Because I read these and I get really excited. I'm like, oh, these are questions that I love asking, but now it's on a card. It's not Brian's jackassery. This is the card that's doing it. Right. Exactly. So, so what's great about these card games is the card games have done most of the work for you. You don't have to do anything. And that's what I think is really beautiful. It's not like we're going into a therapy session. We're not going on a men's retreat. We're not, we're like, Hey, I got this box of card games. Let's play. It's a game. It's that easy. Right. And we can change the rules around. And what's key inside is that just by saying we're playing a game already creates a space. And what I've learned, and that's what's what's in the book is distillation of what I've learned. My team and I have learned from the last 10 years, 12 couples is, Two things require to have a cathartic conversation, creating the space and well-constructed questions. And when you play a game, that creates a space. What I mean by create the space, you know, if you, if you ask your friend, you know, you're out playing golf and you just boom, bang out a really interesting question, like, wait, where is this coming from? What, why are you asking me this? But if you're sitting around having a few beers or playing golf and as you're playing golf, you just say, hey, we're going to play this game. Then why are you asking me this? That's been answered. And when that's been answered, now we both have permission to answer and to receive. And so the game creates a space for you. And now the well-constructed questions that are, you know, 200 of them are in each box. That's going to set you off on a journey. So you don't have to do much other than just be. 
And they don't have, and, and I think the only work you have to do is let go of whatever expectations you have for what kind of conversation you want to have. If it's with your four friends or with your family and you want to have a deep, you got to let that deep conversation work. You got to let that go. Just be in it, ask a question and see what comes up. And then practice on your end, just listening and not responding and seeing how your body responds to those questions or to the, sorry, to the answers. Both, actually. You're going to ask a question, you're going to feel uncomfortable. Oh, shit, what's my friend going to say? What's my dad going to say? This is what I would say if, if I was my dad. And then you're going to hear your dad's response, your brother's response, your best friend's response. And it might be very different. Set this up for me mechanically. So uh -huh. one group is five. The other, let's call it eight. Do we... Well, so your friends, your friends, you're going to have to buy the friends edition. Yeah. <laughs> That's not one. We can do that. That's we can no do that. Problem. And maybe even get the amusing one and mix the amusing one into the friends because amusing is kind of fun. Um, look, guys, where are we sitting? Like, do we have a space where we are somewhat contained? Where there's not lots of distractions coming by. You know, you you're not next to a construction site. You're not you're not doing five things. You guys are hanging out. You know, it's great for a road trip. It's great you're sitting around having some cocktails or a beer or just sitting watching the sunset as you guys pull out cars or even over a meal at the end of a meal, you finish dinner, you're sitting around desserts, pull out the card. And then there's 200 questions, mix them up in your hand. Two ways I like to play. One is I go, okay, I'm going to ask Jimmy. I'm going to ask sister question, pull out a random question. I ask it. She answers it right then, or Jimmy, you call out who you're going to ask. Read the question to them randomly out of the card deck. They'll answer. Then you give the deck to them. Then they say, oh, I'm going to ask this person. And then they, so it's kind of like a popcorn, you know, one person answers, then that person then asks a question to someone else they call out. You just want to call out who you're asking before you read the question or you pull it, right? Because you don't want to read the question then intentionally know who am I asking. And that's part it's of- not like you don't recommend the speed dating, hey, one-on-one, -on -one, then you go around and one-on-one, -on -one, it's more for the group to so observe and witness as well. You could do that. And th the other option that's more kind of group dating is like, say we're in a group, I pull out a question and I ask the question. And now each person in the group will answer to me as though we're one-on-one, -on -one, but we're doing it in the context of everyone. So you're there with your family, you pull out a question, who surprised you most in the, fa in the, in the family? Or what have I done this year that surprised you most? So then- your sister answers it first to you. Then your dad will answer it to you for then your brother, then your, your son. And so you just go around the circle and each person will answer to you the question you just ask. And then the next person goes. So it's kind of like that. Those are the two ways I like to play. You were talking about a well-constructed question. What makes a well-constructed question? So in the context of a relation, and this is so often, in my opinion, overlooked, and we have to really be cognizant of the questions we ask, right? So like five parts to a well-constructed question in context of relationship. One and the biggest one is it's got to be a connected question. What I mean by that is, Brian, what, what scares you the most? Uh, snakes. Okay. So you're going to answer that the same way. If I ask you that, your dad asks you that, or the waiter asks you that. The question is not, does not reflect the person asking, does not reflect our connection. If I instead ask you, what do you think we're both scared of? If I ask you that, you're going to answer one way. If your dad asks you that, you're answering a different way. If the waiter asks you that, you'll answer a different way. Why? 
because it's the question acknowledges the connection. So one, make it a connect a connective question that re- that acknowledges their connection that's unique, right? So Can it's you not stay like, there for a second because yeah, to me, what that does is it brings me into the space as a contributor and a collaborator rather than an interviewer or questioner or an interrogator. It, it makes it so that I'm with you on this. And I'm, I'm now even more curious because you're now reflecting on what you're exactly are. It's pulling at the threads of our connection, right? So if if you're going to ask me a question, what are we both scared of? I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about us. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about our relationship. You're thinking about the same thing. And all of a sudden we're not thinking about ourselves as individuals. We're thinking about us as a unit, as a relationship. And that's what we don't do often enough. And that's what's that's what's special about these questions. And that's what makes us really unique that and I laugh about it because that's what's it's like so simple, but off it's all overlooked. And that's what makes these questions different. And that people often miss in the questions is make it connective. That's just one of the five parts of a good question. But I and it's also beautiful because if I ask you something about what you're scared of, you can go off for hours about it, but it doesn't really mean anything to me. But if I ask you, what are we both scared of? I'm invested in your response because you're reflecting back me. And that's the na- by nature of the question. We're reflecting each other to each other. We're reflecting you know, our relationship. And we're both part of that relationship. We both make it. We're part of the ingredients in it. And that's what I think makes a beautiful question more, so, and therefore leads to a more beautiful conversation. So we've got connection. Give me the other four just so we have okay, well, a framework. Two is don't ask a binary question. Because that's just so easy to close down. I mean, how do you explore a binary question? Do you love me? Yes. Are you upset? Yes. No. I mean, done. Next. It doesn't create the space for gray. It doesn't create space for exploration. Three, uh, don't ask a question that has an agenda or a instigation or a judgment behind it because that's going to shut them down. You know, ask something. Don't uh, ask a question as a gift. Make sure the question is shaped as a gift, not as an agenda or an accusation. It's much easier to shake a hand than a finger that's pointing at you. The agenda right? one, one of the things that I've realized is a lot of people will ask questions that they know the answer to. And right. As like if you knew if you had an answer, you 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 had an answer, but you asked me the question so that then you could share the answer. I'm like, either tell me or 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 ask a question that you're actually genuinely curious about. And I have found myself to be in spaces sometimes where people are asking questions because they feel like they're supposed to. And mm-hmm. for me, I'd rather you actually share. If you have an opinion, just give me your opinion rather than asking me a question that you already have an answer to that question for. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think, think questions the- are, are meant for to be curious and and not necessarily for what we already know. Uh, well, that goes to like, what kind of conversation are we having right now? Are we having a combative conversation, argument? Are we coming to like a decision in this conversation? Well, then that's a different kind of conversation. It's good to contextualize it as such and then have a conversation from there in which, okay, our heads are going to talk here. Our minds. I'm going to listen to you because I'm, res- and I'm already thinking about my response because I need to win the argument, da, da, da. And so then our heads are talking and we just got to remember our heads are built to protect us but our hearts are built to connect us. And what I'm talking in this conversation is having a heartfelt conversation, having one that explores and creates a space of actually a connection, a connective conversation. And that's what we, A, don't get taught of in our lives. 
you know, unless you're in a certain kind of family that practices and does it by, you know, by their tradition or one, I know by their practice, but we don't get taught this in schools or universities or even our relationships. And I think that's a great gift for me of having this experience because it bring, brought my awareness more consciously, conscientiously and consciously to the conversations and how to have them. So I, I obviously do that with my wife and I effort to do that with my family. Um, yeah. I've never heard it said that way. I often ask clients to check in with their head, their heart, and their gut. But I've never heard it that cleanly, which I've said all the time, our brain is designed for us to survive. But that was so much cleaner and clearer, which our head is meant to protect us. Our heart is meant to connect us. And that intuitively just makes a whole lot of sense. And yeah. I hadn't have thought of it in that clean of a way. Yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, agenda was three. What was the fourth and fifth? So fourth is don't. So, okay. So make sure the question is constructive. Make sure the question is constructive. What do I mean by that? Why do we fight so much? Okay. I'll give you a whole list about why we fight so much. Why? Because you're asking the person's going to respond to you again with, with their brain or whatnot. I'll tell you what. I mean, we, our brains are like the dogs that chase after sticks and the sticks are the questions. Be cognizant of where you're throwing the stick. Why are you throwing the stick into the pond when you could throw it up on the grassy knoll, on the knoll, you know, on, up, up on the nice grass hill? And what I mean by that is, why do we fight so much? You're throwing the stick into the pond. Your dog, our minds are going to chase that down and we're going to come up with a list of why we fight. Instead, let's make it constructive. Let's throw it up on a grassy hill and say, what's our biggest challenge right now and what is it teaching us? Okay. Now your brain is working to answer that question and you're looking as a challenge as a lesson. So you're reframing my, you know, um, why are you always, why are you always angry at me? What about shifting it to, um, why do you think I feel as though you're angry at me? What am I missing? You're reframing it. Right. You're reframing, reframe the correct, make sure that when you're asking the question, you're framing in a way that's leading you to some constructive answers. So be aware of the questions you're asking. I mean, when we wake up in the morning and we're answering, oh shit, I got to go do this today. We don't realize we just answered a question. We're not realizing that we're asking ourselves a question. You just ask yourself, what do I have to do today? Ah, shit, I got to do that thing. What if you said, what's the, what is, is before you even had that answer, you said, okay, wait. What what awesome thing can I do today? Oh, other than all the other stuff I go going, I had that one meeting that I'm so excited about. So where are you throwing the stick? What's the question you're asking? Is it constructive? Stay there for me. You used a why question. And I went to grad school for psychology. Then I went to more school for executive coaching. I've had people that are very wise tell me, they don't like why questions, why questions put people on defense and they, you know, it, you can ask a what question instead of a why question. And recently I had a client bring this up. They were talking to their therapist and their therapist said, you know, don't use why questions. And I sort of pushed back on my client and I said, I love why questions. Uh, I think why questions seek to explore and explain uh, why someone did what they did. And I also said to me to eliminate a word from my toolbox is limiting 
And there's a time and a place for a why question. There's a time and place for a how question, a what question. Your use of a why question there, do you have any thoughts on on why questions as as rules? No, I don't. I don't. I ha- what I when I construct questions, I often sometimes I make grammatical mistakes on purpose. Why? Because oh wait, someone else made a mistake in the question that gives me permission to be mistaken in my answer. Right? It gives you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. If you ask a formal question, you'll get a formal response. The question primes the response. Just like a race is shaped by the course it's on, the answer is shaped by the question you ask. So if I ask a formal question, I'll get a formal response. If I ask an informal question, I most likely will get an informal response. I also make sure that you're not saying, what is our biggest conflict? Just tweak it to, what do you think is our biggest conflict? Oop, that gave, or even better than think is what do you feel? Because I can't argue with you about what you feel. And that creates a space for, hey, this is how I'm feeling. Let me express it, right? So are we saying what, like, why am I asking you what is? That means now you're now you're the, the arbiter of what the truth is. And that's really challenging in a relationship, right? But if you say, what do you think? Or even better, what do you feel? Then it's like, there's no necessarily an argument there. That's your experience. And you have an acknowledgement I should acknowledge your experience of it, right? So shaping questions like that, I'm always either grammatically not always perfect and also making sure it's like, what do you think? What do you feel? What is, just to create the space so it's not definitive. It's not like one person relationship is going to define what it is. Instead, they're going to define what their experience of it is. And I know this research is a little outdated and it might be debunked, but I think the premise of the idea and the concept resonates with me, which is years ago, they found that 55% of all language uh, was was um, understood through body language. Yeah, 37% was tone and 8% was what we actually said. And when I hear you describe that, it, it speaks to it. And the only other thing I'll say that's really worth noting is for me in my journey, my grad program was heavily based on sort of cognitive behavioral principles. And so we talked a lot about the head and and then living in a sport world, it was highly competitive and a lot about how, how are you gonna do it? How are you gonna do it? And for me, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that background because I work with people that are competitive, high performers that wanna get better. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably in that bucket, so to speak. And uh, when I went back to school again, we talked more about the body. And hey, what did that feel like? And where did you feel it? And can you locate where you felt it? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. once again, I, I love the range, like the ability to tap into the head and the heart, the ability to tap mm-hmm. into the mind and the body, and also the understanding that sometimes our intuition or gut also plays a role in our decision making. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hearing you sort of say, hey, maybe it's like boxing, like maybe you go to the body sometimes and you go to the head sometimes, not actual boxing, but the analogy of that like there's different ways to work a question i i think we fall in that's beautiful and i think we fall into the either or there's the mind and the body these things are connected but the question is what's leading and what is in who what is in service to what is our hearts and bodies in service to the mind therefore it's repressing the emotions so the mind could be you know cold and calculated and articulate or is the mind serving the body where it's articulating the emotions that the body is currently going through, knowing that, you know, you, the emotion you have now may change in three, four minutes. 
So what what is in a we are we are a holistic organism. We're connected. But what is leading the charge, and what is in service to what? That's the thought that comes up. So we've got what makes a great question the, connection, right? We've got connection. Yeah. We've the got hey. Try, connective question. Connective yeah. question. We've got, hey, try to not make it so binary. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got, hey, leave the agenda, you know, mm -hmm. off the side and then make it constructive. Uh, take us home. Like what else? The last then, one is. By the way, this is this is heady, right? Like, let's let's be real. Like we're getting into mechanics here and what makes it. But I think sometimes we need the head. We need the fundamentals if we're going to then go play in these other spaces. So, trust me, Topaz and I are going to play and we're going to dance today. But it's interesting. I actually feel more grounded that we have the cards, that we have the fundamentals, that we have the the basics down. It's like if you're going to play basketball and you don't learn how to dribble. And so you can't really shoot and you can't really pass if you don't at least know how to dribble a ball and have the threat of being able to put it on the on the floor and make a move. And you got to learn how to dribble your right and master that if you're right handed before you cross over to the left. And and then you need to work on the left. And so there's there's all these different pieces. But I think these are some fundamentals that are really helpful for me and hopefully helpful for others as well. Yeah. The last I mean, that's why I wrote the book, because. A lot of people get enjoyment from sitting in the stands, watching the basketball game, watching our videos on YouTube, seeing these emotional conversations, getting a digital dose of humanity, playing the card games with their family and getting this incredible experience. The reason I wrote the book is because teach you, this is how you play the game. This is how you play basketball. This is how you play the game of creating the space, asking questions. So you can make it a practice in your life. Why should you do that? Because man, this is going to make your life. Your relationships are an example of the quality of your life. You get good questions, good conversations, good conversations lead to good relationships, good relationships lead to a more vital life. Why? Because your relationships are more resilient, sustaining, fulfillable. Anyways, last one. Try to connect two things that are not usually connected. And or puts one person in the other person's shoes. So let me give an example. What does earning money cost you? What's your favorite relationship from your What's, sorry, what's your favorite memory from your worst relationship? How does conflict make us better? We're connecting things here that don't often come together. But by doing that, it's sending the, throwing the stick in a direction that you haven't really been before. And your mind is trying to sort it out. And that's where you're exploring because you haven't been in that part of the park. I'm talking about the allegory of setting the stick, right? You ask a question and you're like, oh, it's like neuroplasticity. You're connecting two different neural nodes together that aren't normally connected, but now you're exploring that. And that's always interesting. So asking things that are not usually connected is a nice way to elevate the question. And the other flip side, not flip side, I should say, but another component is putting yourself in the other person's shoes or them in yours. So what do you think is the hardest thing being your friend. So now you're thinking, I got to put myself in my friend's shoes and look at myself. You're putting yourself, that question puts you in other people's shoes. What do you think is my biggest challenge? Now that puts you in my shoes and you have to look at my world through my eyes and you're saying, what's probably his biggest challenge? But you're in my shoes. So putting in, asking a question, having, having a question, posing a question that puts people in each other's shoes is really helpful, creating empathy and connection. And speaking of connection, I think one of the things that your cards do a nice job of, you're using some really deep 
questions right now, but there's also like, Hey, um, model what I look like when I'm dancing. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and God bless my wife, but it, it, I'm the dancer in the relationship. She is not. And so I, I like started chuckling just like you did uh, about that or, you know, embarrassment. What do I do that embarrasses you? I would imagine there is a wide range of, of emotions that you're going to feel when we use your questions. And when we talked the first time I, I mentioned the video that I watched with your friend and uh, mm -hmm. how you all were cursing and you all were chuckling and you could tell there was a lightness and also a depth that existed in that conversation. And I think sometimes we think that we have to go deep and we have to go dark and mm -hmm. I think one of the things I appreciate flipping through the cards is there can be lightness and humor. Uh, humor is a huge component to a great conversation. And it made me think about, you're going to go on my friend Joe Furrow's podcast. And Joe just recently posted on Twitter that he wants to reshape how we do weddings. And I can imagine him after talking to you, he's going to say, oh, we should put your cards on a wedding table and have people share those cards on the wedding table. And Joe's idea was, you know, and then basically have a halftime in the middle of a wedding, you should switch up your seats and have to go, you know, yeah. meet someone else. And I said to him over Twitter, very nuanced conversation that exists over Twitter. I said, Joe, man, I'm down for the deep conversation part, but if I'm on the dance floor and I've had a few drinks and the band is playing a great song and you You're not call talking. me, you <laughs> yeah. call me back. And now you want me to go engage with someone new? I'm going to no. lose my shit on you, man. <laughs> and and so I think as we're talking, the idea of these are, emotion is not the sadness, anger, humor, right. laughter, joy, uh, jealousy, envy. I mean, like happiness. Uh, like there are all these different emotions. And I think yeah. one of the questions that you ask is like, what makes you feel most alive? For me, I do feel alive on the dance floor, just like I feel alive having a conversation that's meaningful. I, let's not confuse. I think often people do because they say, oh, we're going to have a deep conversation. So it's got to be kind of dark or deep or we're going to get melancholic or this. It's, no, 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 no. Let's not confuse deep with amplification. Right. And you could be, I'm just, these questions, this experience can amplify you in a way of incredible positivity where you are so stoked that you just heard that and you look the other person in the eye, your whole body is just light and joyful because you both have that mutual acknowledgement and you look at each other and go, hmm, beautiful. And that's not, that's, that's deep too, but it's not depressing. It's not melancholic. We're not, we're not, you know, we might be crying, cry, crying tears of joy, not tears of sadness. Right. So let's not confuse. Like when, when I see a deep conversation, it's not what we generally think is like a deep, I'm thinking it's just that in our normal wave of a conversation, it's amplified. Either way up here or way there. Now we are exploring the tops and the bottoms, right? In a much more amplified manner. I think that's that's what we should play. That's what we should play with, and that's what I hear when you say it's all these different emotions. Like, let's go touch all these different emotions, right? During the pandemic, I think a realization for me was the lack of novelty, the mm -hmm. lack of exploration. It was the same thing every day. Woke up, you did your work. Mm -hmm. Then you finished and it's just like the same thing every day. And I missed driving and seeing a new restaurant open, or I missed seeing someone new in the neighborhood, or 
I missed going to a concert or a game and it was just a novel experience. And once again, when I think about the questions that you're posing, a lot of them are novel. They're just questions that we don't typically ask. We fall into societal programming, uh, in society, but also relationship programming, right? Where you're kind of in the same mode and pattern. I say, listen, pattern. How many times do you have the same pattern with your dad, with your partner, with your, I dare say, with your kids? I mean, that's why you have people joke about date night. They're on date night, but they don't have anything to say because they're bored of the same patterns. How do you break out of the pattern? You need to try something new. So how do you try something new? You need to be, you know, you have to explore and create new questions. In this case, we do the homework for you, you got the box of questions, but in the book it's taught, and we just discussed it now, here's five ways you can create your own questions. But by creating new questions, we're exploring new patterns and that's where there's more energy, right? That's where there's more energy that's gonna fuel our relationship. And that's gonna build a stronger, resilient, relationship that can weather the storms of any challenge. So we both wrote a book and I mentioned the publishers always want to know who the audience is and who's it for. And the other thing that they always ask is why you, why are mm. you the best person to deliver this message? And yeah. I, I, you know, our last conversation, we went deep into your background as an Emmy award winning writer, director, uh, and experienced design architect, but really that, that, writer director role i mean you've got a journey that is very much in film and in creating story and making it come to life why you why why are you the and guy and and living in the space why why are you the one carrying this torch yeah great question you know it's funny when the editor reached out and said topaz can you write a would you like to write a book about this what do you think that in first thought i said this was in 22 years ago First thought I said is, do we really need to hear from another, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual, and white male? And she said, Topaz, I think that's not a good question. She goes, the question is, you've been doing this work for 10 years. What can, can you, is, does that have value to share with people? And from that framework, we're like, okay, that's a, yeah. Okay, so then why me? All right, so that's part of looking into the book. And really, you know, one thing I, my perception of this experience that we call life or not is that I have these experiences in the narrative of my life. Some are painful, some are light, some are beautiful, some are really grateful. For, I mean, all I'm grateful for, but I traverse this journey. I learn from it. And then hopefully I can convert these sources of pain that have created hunger in me to then offer a gift. What I mean by that, as a kid, my parents got divorced. I was like, I mean, my first memories are basically from parents fighting and I was two, three years old. And I was in some sense moderating that, my memory of that experience is moderating and mediating that divorce. And I remember thinking there's something missing here and searching that, that created this pain in me of lack of intimacy and connection that led to a hunger of searching for intimacy. And then leads to my 20s and 30s where I'm realizing that the camera is a bridge, it's a door opener into people's worlds where I can see how they connect, what they're living like. And I was really interested in that because I was searching for intimacy. And so I kind of mastered the skill of the visual with the camera and that media, and then I could apply it to now exploring intimacy between people as a larger library. And now I believe that that's pain turned into a hunger, which turned into a gift in the form of the end and from the card game and forward of the book that could be offered to people. So why me? Because that's what happened to me. Now, 
why am I sharing it? And I and I and my team and I talk about that because obviously I get in my own way, right? I get in my own way. Like, I mean, this is, we're on a tenth year. This is the first time I'm putting my face out there. We have been blessed to, you know, we've been offered a few black owned business awards, and we have to turn them down because I'm not African American, you know, or female owned. Topaz, you could be, you don't know who that is, right? And I just happened to be in the position and the team and I say, why why us? It's like, well, because we take this responsibility and integrity, right? When we edit these conversations over 1,200 on YouTube, we could be so much bigger in terms of subscriber count than, but we did not make titles that are BuzzFeedy. We did not cut these one-hour conversations into 10-minute salaciousness where it's just fighting and, you know, we didn't do that. We protected the integrity of the project over long term. And so ultimately, why me? Because certain things happened in my life that created a hunger, turned into a, a gift, you know, like a skill set that I could offer. And also we treat it with respect and 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 uh, responsibility and integrity. I think. I mean, that's my opinion. All right. I want to go into the media side of this uh really quickly. We've had on, we had, we just interviewed Jared Freed, who just had a Netflix comedy special. We had on Pablo Torre, who works for ESPN and has a long form podcast, but is also on Part in the Interruption and Around the Horn. And with both Pablo and Jared, Jared loves doing stand up and loves being on stage for an hour and doing his thing and has his own podcast. And, and so both Pablo and Jared, you could tell, Pablo really cares about journalism and storytelling. Jared really cares about comedy and and formulating uh, the the methods underneath what makes people laugh. And both of them, we talked about the future of media, TikTok or, or, or short clips. And both of them admitted that you have to play the game and you have to be able to give people what they want while not having to be all things to all people. And when I hear you, I hear myself, which is like, I'm just going to do it the way that I feel is right and is in alignment with my integrity. But sometimes I'll speak for myself. I feel like I'm playing smaller because I'm not playing the game. And if someone is trying to digest this content in their way, I probably have some form of obligation to give them what they want without sacrificing my integrity or sacrificing what lights me up. How do you sort of find that space to still do the things that light you up, but perhaps take advantage of opportunities that don't go against your morals or your integrity, but might not be the thing that is the reason why you're doing it? And so I think we all have to figure out, we don't need to be all things to all people, but we also need to meet people where they are. How do you hold space for both of those? Mm. Experience. I'm 47 now. It's an interesting journey in my 20s. It was all about value. What's the value you're offering? And so I made a film around the world called Americana. I made it with very little money, a great team. I was exhausted at the end of it. I was show up in a place. I showed up in Cuba with a camera, and in 12 days I came out with a short film. Went to Sundance. No script, nothing. Just explored, just kind of investigative journalism. Did that around the world. Value-based some critical acclaim, but like it wasn't seen by people. 
I continued making work where it was about values, What? but I got burnt out. I got exhausted because there was not, I wasn't making it in such a way that it would come, the energy I put out did not come back to me in excess. Some people call that excess profit, right? And you might have a, and I think in time I started realizing, okay, I can make this beautiful, meaningful work, but if other people don't see it, what's the value it is like that old adage like if a tree falls in the forest if no one's around did it fall because no one heard it so i think what i'm proudest of in my professional life is that we won the emmy for something that was really meaningful and was close to our, it was our values and we didn't sell out we didn't make it salacious we didn't do it and yet it still caught on just lucky. Lucky that we were able to do something that aligned with our values and also resonated with enough people that enough people were able to see it. I don't have a magic sauce for how to do that. But when you say like it's it's a game and you have to play the game, it's like, well, which game are we playing? Which game are we playing? I mean, are we am I and that comes back to a question? What game are we playing? Am I playing the game of, oh, I need subscriber counts now? Or am I playing the game of I want my grandkids to be able to watch these conversations that have real value in the year of the great pandemic. I want them to see these conversations, what humanity was like before AI or whatever took over the world or whatever it is going to be in 30 years. Well, in that game, I'm playing the game great. So when we say the games, like what's the game? What's the game you're playing? And is it in alignment with your values or not? And we don't ask that question enough. What game am I playing? It's just, I mean, I used to be a filmmaker had film Sundance can da 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 da, and then what led me to the place I am now is that I asked myself a different question. I said, "What game am I playing? Am I playing the popular culture game of media, you know, in theaters, or am I playing the game of injecting ideas into the mainstream?" Oh, that's a really interesting game to play. So I shifted to that game, and then now you're in the game. Well, am I in the game of getting subscriber counts, or am I in the game of long-term? value and efficiency, regardless if people don't watch it. If I get 5,000 listens, but five people listen and are moved, is that more important to me than if 100,000 people watch it and don't forget about it? So what game are you playing? It, it's it's true. And I'm just going to pull on this a little bit. Great. Pablo, Pablo Torre is a really good example. He, I thought this was magnificent what he said. He said, look, people come to my show because they've seen me on ESPN and I've created a brand and you know, they come because of sports. And then my job, and he said this comes from his days working at Sports Illustrated. And it's interesting to mention Sports Illustrated at a time where they may be closing up shop. But he would say at Sports Illustrated, it's a magazine. And so we have limited pages and we have to tell a story in, in very limited uh, space. And he said, our job at Sports Illustrated was when we had them on the ramp, to find ways to make sure that they wouldn't get off the ramp. And so he's basically telling stories that go beyond sport and go into the human condition and our communities and our sociology and our psychology. But he said, my job is to make sure that I'm still telling stories that causes them not to get off the ramp. And for you, I would imagine there is some formula that, Hey, we need to find people. And then when we get them in our space, we have an obligation responsibility to make sure that they're continuing to come back, that we're still feeding them value. Um, and we're doing it with our values and with our integrity. But there's this like, uh, there's a line there, right? There's like, how do I 
keep them engaged, keep them going. And, and, and perhaps there are times where I cut up the clip to give them something to bring them on the ramp and then don't lose them. But yeah, you're nodding your head. No, you're, no, you're saying, I don't mm -mm. like, no. I like sometimes my, t no, mm -mm. I, I, um, sometimes we'll have an edit where I say we have to protect, we have to, one person is literally, we have an edit sometimes where one person is clearly toxic and manipulative and we can, we can edit it where they look really tough. And you know, that thing's going to go viral. And I say, we can't, we have to, we have to protect that individual. We have to protect this conversation. Why? Because if we make it about how toxic this person is and does, yes, it'll go viral, but then no one's learning. We're not actually, there's nothing distilled here that we're learning. It's not really worth people's time. We have to, what's the value here? And if we end up hating one person so much and that gets all this engagement and clicks and, you know, trolling, Okay, great. That'll be great for the algorithms, but what's the value of the person's time? So we actually edit it so that we're always like, so that whoever's watching gets something that's distilled learning that hopefully offers value in their life. That's 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 why I say we could be so much bigger, but we took that approach like, no, this is a long-term approach. And that's also why we get people who come and share their stories now with us in our 10th, 11th year. You know, we had Lauren Brad on who lost her son less than a year before. They come on to talk about the grief of losing their child, 18 years old. And they did it. And he was a Marine, 14 years. He said, this is the scariest thing I've done in my life. And I know I have to do it because otherwise I might lose my wife. I'm going to have this conversation. I'm going to have it on your channel because I trust. And they don't trust me. They trust the work at 10 year span. So for me, that's the game we're in. And we're not, in that sense, we don't bend for the numbers. And fortunately, we're able to sell enough card games that keeps us in business. And God knows I've had to, I had to let people go. So painful twice. We had to do big turnarounds. You know, things change. It was not easy, especially when you have a company that's talking about human connection and relationships and they have to fire team members. I mean, that put me in some, you know, some form of depression, but no way. Haven't I, we make content. We're not there to keep them on. Like we're not there to uh, change a billion people's lives. You know, people say, I want to change a billion people. Like, why? Why not just change one person's life person's life profoundly? And it just comes back to the context framing of what game are we playing? And can you and can you do it in a sustainable way? What I hear from you is Topaz, whatever game you're playing, can you do it sustainably? That that's where you have to adjust. If you want to play your great game that no one listens to and there's no response to, you're gonna get burnt out. So you have to find where the two overlap and then maybe stick in that zone. Two things. One, just to go back to Pablo to make it crystal clear what I'm saying about Pablo. He was saying they're coming for the sport, but we want to give them something more meaningful. And so when right. I'm saying we don't want them to jump off, we we want to keep them engaged with our storytelling and make them maybe see something in a from a different lens or a different perspective than otherwise they they would have. And and so I just want to mm -hmm. make sure that's clear. He's not trying to be manipulative right. and he's not he's not doing it for clicks or anything like that. He's just the art of storytelling, right? Like we, totally. we get into something and how do we open our minds to your point? I think you're very similar. How do we learn? How do we how do mm -hmm. we notice something about ourselves? Um, and then the other piece that I think is really important to point out based on what I'm hearing from you is the sustainability, playing the long game, that this isn't all just 
for just altruistic sake. This is also because we want to develop a relationship with our community and let them know that this isn't just about getting men once and then they watch one thing and then they move on. We want to continue to add value to them. And the way we do that is with a more long-term approach than a shock and awe sort of uh, uh, no. approach. No, I'm not even thinking about them coming back. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about my grandkids. I'm thinking about the kids, the people I will never meet that will watch their content that will be affected by it. That's something that I think we don't ask in, in modern society, we don't ask that question. We're thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about what if you thought, what if not you as in Brian, but like as an individual, the listener, what if we said, what can I do today that will make my grandkids' life better? You just extend i mean if you look at indigenous cultures they're thinking about you know they say like seven generations ahead they're thinking about or that you know, they're thinking about the future and that leads to different behaviors now so that's when i'm talking about i'm not creating the content i'm not thinking about people coming back over and over again and watch i'm th i'm making this repository so that the future can watch it and learn in ways and have results and outcomes that i'm not even aware of what could be mm. So it's really purpose driven. It's there's legacy there. Yeah. I'm because we're I'm, we're in a flash in the pan, man. I remember being three years old and my parents divorced. I remember being thirteen, thinking about the first time I'm gonna have my first kiss. I remember, I remember you know, walking the streets of New York, hustling, trying to get a job, filming at MTV or whatnot. I mean, and now I'm 47. I have two kids. I can't believe how fast it went. And soon I'm gonna be dead. Soon it's gonna be like, soon I'm gonna be 80. So, God bless. Who knows? It's so fast. So what are we leaving behind? What are we leaving behind? For who? Those are the questions I'm wondering about. And so according to that, I and I think I'm in a position of great luxury, not just because I'm a white male and got the great card and the current makeup of life, but you know, in the system of life, but like I just happen to come across something that works and that works along with my values, along that's sustainable financially. You know, it's not abundant, but it works. And, and I'm really grateful for that. And that's why I also feel it's a responsibility. Oh, this works. How can I apply it more? How can I apply it more in people's lives in, in different aspects with different issues of, you know, conflicts so that it can help more people? How much do you think about legacy? Well, I don't, I don't think about my legacy. I just think about, I just think about, uh, the, the future. And I think that if we make a one millimeter change now, one millimeter, like everyone talks, we got to make, no, 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 no. You make one millimeter now in a hundred years, you're in a, you're the distant, the different spot you'll be at is, is not just a millimeter. It's a mile. It's five miles. You know, if you think about your own life, if I make one change today, I do 50 pushups a day. In a year from now, I want to be miles apart than if I didn't do that 50 push-ups a day. And everyone's looking for these big changes. Like big changes come from just micro changes consistently. And if you think about in the scope of your lifetime, of what you could do for future lifetimes, you know where this comes from? Let me tell you where this comes from. This comes from the story of my family and my father's side was that they were Jews. March 11th, 1943, Skopje, Macedonia. 7,300 Jews were collected in all of Macedonia and in three weeks sent to the ovens of Treblinka. Of those 7,300, only 169 Jews survived. And my family 
was nine of those 169. They fled to Albania, where for a year and a half to two years, they posed as Muslims in a small village in Albania and pretended they were Muslims fleeing from a blood feud. And in that culture, when you're fleeing from a blood feud, if someone comes to you, it's your responsibility to hide them. So my family was posed as Muslims and was hidden by this Muslim family, farmer family. 1994, my dad goes back and makes a documentary. It's on YouTube. It's called, uh, He Wants to Remember, I Want to, I Want to Remember, He Wants to Forget. And the filmmaker, the director, asked the two brothers who saved my family, and said, did you know they were Jews? And they said, oh yeah, we knew they were Jews from the day they arrived. Huge reveal. My family was scared of being Jewish, hiding, posing as Muslims. But the Muslims knew from day one that they were Jews and they were hiding Jews. They knew exactly what they were doing. Cut to, I go back to research and I want to make it into a film. Cut to the grandchildren of the two brothers that saved my, my grandfather and my father. They moved to New York. Now I have a responsibility to help them as much as I can. Now, granted, they never met my grandfather. I never met their grandparents. And yet something that our grandparents did for each other has, inter has connected us. I have a responsibility for them to pay back that debt. What that means is that what we do now does echo into the future to people you will never meet. It I, I experienced that directly in my life history. And so maybe that's what's driving me to make things for the future. What's the millimeter of change you're working on right now? Bringing more conscientious to the conversations we're having, right? I mean, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a conversation with your family on this trip, just by this simple. You don't have to make it deep. Just like, hey, let's play this game. Boom! There will be moments where you all go, oh wow, beautiful, thank you, and that will just elevate now the possibility of what conscientious conversations. And I don't mean my like we don't have to bring gravitas to it. It's just a game, just well constructed questions. Now you go, oh wow, this is possible, and that will give a little bit of a tweak. So the next time you go into a conversation, you know what? I'm going to ask a slightly different question. Instead of asking my son why he made that mistake, you go, what did you think you could learn from that mistake? Just tweak it. That creates a whole new opportunity for connection with your son, for him to see the world in a different way, for you to see it a different way, and now we're on a different path. Now we're on a millimeter connection. Not sure if I'm breaking the second sort of concept of asking great questions on the binary side, yeah. but... I'm curious about the power of film compared to the power of these cards. I mean, mm. you have lifted the cards. People aren't going to watch this, but uh, Topaz has lifted up the set of cards multiple times during our conversation today. And you could feel how proud he is of the cards. And, and, and obviously you have a book as well, but let's for now just focus on cards compared to film. And if you want to put the book into the cards category, maybe that's where it belongs. But what are what do the cards do that you weren't that you don't get in in film because you're living in both spaces still? But what do you get with the cards that you're not getting in in film? So in film, you're watching someone else go through something, and you're having a conversation through them, through their reflection. So you have a husband and wife; they're having a conversation. You're watching it. And of course, you're wondering what they're going to say to each other and how they're reacting. And maybe you're judging them or analyzing what they're going through. And then maybe part of you wonders like, oh, am I like that in a relationship? Am I like this? So you're witnessing your own relationships through them as a reflection, as a mirror, right? Because you're watching them. But in essence, they're the protagonist because they're the ones who are asking, answering and making choices. When you play the game, you're the protagonist. 
you're having the experience. It's brought into your life. And there's values to both, right? There's values to both. But when you have the card games and it's in your life, that sense of humanity that you do feel when you watch these videos, you'll also just sense in the relationships in your own life. And isn't that something that we often fall into is that in, like for me, when we go to the cinema, right? And you see a, you know, Robert De Niro or Leonardo DiCaprio, whoever star we're watching, is their face is 40 feet tall because it's on a huge screen. It's just modern day deity. It's like, you know, we used to make statues that were huge, super huge humans, right? And you pray to them or look to them or remember them. That's what we're doing now. We look at these celebrity, you know, they're on a big movie screen. They're huge. They're 50 feet tall. And then we put our feelings as though the, the feelings are experienced in the movies or whatnot is something reserved for the gods or for these other stars. No. Or even on your YouTube phone now, it's like, this, this is their life that they're having. No, this is the life you're having. And what you feel by watching that, you can feel in your own life. The, the amount of agency that comes into your own hand then is that much greater. Right? You're like, oh, I can feel this. That sense, that tear that I shed when she said, why do you love me? That I saw Marcel and Rock talk about on the end. When my wife said her response was just as profound and deep. And the thing is, it's not behind a screen. This is real. This is in my life. And how many of us are hiding behind screens? What's it been like for you to go from being behind a camera to being on camera? You said, this is new for me. I, I yeah. spent a lot of time, I'm going to use the term shadows, but I spent a lot of time behind telling other people's stories. And even, you know, with the skin deep and, and the stuff you're putting out on YouTube, like you've put yourself out there in emotional ways there. And then obviously with the book and with doing interviews like this, you're putting yourself out there. What's that like for you coming behind the, the camera and actually being on camera? Well, I did the end with my dad twice. And the reason I did it is because I didn't feel it was fair of myself to ask others to walk the walk if I didn't walk the walk. So that's why I did that. In terms of putting my face now, because the book is out, because it's a necessity in order to get the book out and the message out. And I think in today's world, if there's like a human behind it, it sells easily, right? And for the skin deep, you know, we have a great competitor. We're not really strangers. They do great and they're wonderful. Social, they have a great product and they're great. But they started with a young, started by a young woman um, who was very attractive model was a profession. And so that, that was much easier for that to kind of go viral and spread because there was a face to it. And the skin deep has never been a face. It's why I mentioned like getting these black owned awards because no one knew who Topaz was and it wasn't important. It's not important. It's important is the offering, the connection that can happen in your own life. And so now the challenge and literally the last six months before the book came out, cause I knew I had to do podcasts and this is getting over myself getting over myself. You know, I have a very successful dad and I watched him as an example. He gave me a lot of gifts. Um, but one of them was just, you know, not wanting to, not wanting to make it about me. But then again, if I make, if I, if I can't get over that, then I can't really offer the value of whatever people may or may not get from listening to this conversation or reading the book. And so I had to get over myself and that's been a growing, growing experience that I'm grateful for. Right. 
but getting over myself and putting myself out there in a personal way is just without without having that question of like, are you a narcissist, man? Are you making it about you? Is it for your ego? What's this about? You mentioned your dad and, and we've talked about our dads mm -hmm. and I know you listen to my podcast with my dad. Yeah. And there is something interesting when I wrote my book, I remember my dad called me, he, he had read it and he said to me, I didn't know what he was going to say. And, <laughs> and as much as I would like to say that I wrote the book to help others and to share what I had learned, I definitely was seeking some form of approval from him. And, uh, to hear him say that he, the first thing he says, I cannot imagine how much work he put into this mm -hmm. and it's great. And I'm so proud of you and you did amazing. And then he said, and the book didn't take you four years because he knew I spent about four years writing it. He said, I feel like it's been your whole life you've been working on this book. Mm. And it's it's got me thinking uh, about what I went through as I was promoting the book, which was it's not about me, but it's about the ideas and the stories and all the people that have poured into me. And if I can then share the gifts that they've given me in the form of the book and make their lives a little bit better so that they can compete and perform at a higher level. And that's something they care about. Great. And I think about that, that with this podcast, do I want a lot of downloads? Yes. Do I want you to subscribe to this podcast? Yes. Do I want you to go write a review on iTunes? Yes. Because people told me that that stuff matters, but there is something different about it being about me. And that's why I didn't want to just do a individual mm. podcast. I wanted to bring other people on to share them. And I feel like I can be a vehicle of sharing wisdom that's been passed to me. And then I can be a vehicle for that. And it's hard to think about it. Even when I post on social media for a long time, I was like, Oh, I'm just being self-promotional. Am I being too self-promotional? Like I cringe when other people are being self-promotional, but then I started to shift my focus to think a little more about, no, there are these ideas that I think are valuable for people. And I want to try to share those ideas with others. And it's not actually about me. It's about the idea. That's what I'm promoting is, mm -hmm. is the idea is the concept is the construct. And if that can be helpful to someone, I have an obligation and responsibility to share my lifetime of what I've learned. And mm -hmm. that to me, as I hear you talk and you say, I'm doing this cause I want, it, it sells easier if it has a face. That's what you said. And that, Someone might have heard that and said, wait, wait, wait a second, man. I thought it doesn't matter. And it's, mm -hmm. and, and I would, my guess is that mm. you're like, yeah, I want to sell a bunch of these copies. I hope it sell a million copies. And there's probably some ego there in some capacity because we're human and ego is part of a human experience. Mm -hmm. But the real primary reason you're probably doing it is because you know how valuable the content is. Exactly. And, you even, and you even mentioned a team. You have a team of people that have helped you put this stuff together as well. So can you hit on that a little bit and suss that out as far as how you think about why does it matter that it sells and that it gets shared? Well, no, I just want to do, look, whether it sells or not, I can't control. What I can't control is doing my best effort to getting the word out. And if people want to buy it or not, great. Now, why am I putting the effort out? Because I believe there's value in this book, but maybe there isn't. Maybe people go, no, there's no value here. Okay, then there isn't. But I believe there is, and I'm going to do my best to put the effort out. And then whatever happens is what happens. You know, but my job is to build a surfboard that rides the wave. If the wave comes or not, but I got to build a surfboard because otherwise I'm not being responsible. I'm not responsible for the 1,200 participants who courageously stepped into the vulnerability of sharing about their relationships and their emotions, not to the team members who put time and energy into 
after you know holding the space for these different participants um it's also not respecting the fact the time that i haven't spent with my kids and doing the work and then offering it to others it's not doing responsibility to sharing for a better world by the little knowledge and experience that i've had if i could put in other people's hands i i it's great. I mean, my joke that I say, because it's going to get sold in China, they're translating to Mandarin and China. My joke is like, I just want to be a failure in China. Because <laughs> a failure in China is like 3 billion copies. But that's like the finance, that's a joke about the finance. But no, actually, like fundamentally, like my job is to do my best effort, right? To what I can control. How long, how big the wave is, how long it lasts, I don't know. But did I build a surfboard? That's my responsibility. And, and to do my best job, you know, and I do think, and then when you talk about like, it's like reframing the question, are you saying, what am I promoting? Oh, then you're like, am I promoting myself or am I pretending it's the book? But is, or is the question, what's, how can I get the value here and share with many people as possible? So then that by, that's a more constructive question. It bypasses the whole idea of narcissism. Now it's like, who cares? Like, is there value here that I can share and how can I share it with people? That's a more constructive question that already bypassed the question of ego and narcissism or self-centeredness, right? And so reframing the question, what game are you playing? Like reframe it, reframe it. And that's a great way to avoid the self-stumbling blocks that we put out there. So speaking of self-promotion, promoting, or whatever it is that you <laughs> want to share, if people want to get the and questions and uh, want to get your book or check out the videos, by the way, I don't think we really did justice to the videos because there's plenty yeah. of videos on YouTube. These videos are spectacular. They are well-produced, well-executed, intentional, like thoughtful. Uh, just to paint the picture for people, they have, I think, three camera angles, right? You have yeah. you have one on each individual. They're facing Close each up. other. So you yeah. get to zoom in on each individual, and then they have one with the two of them. Um, wide so, shot. Yeah. Yeah, wide shot. Uh, and so it's just a, it's simple and it's so powerful. And I guarantee if you take a look at some of those videos, I think he's, I think Topaz said there's 1200, like go play around in those. And I guarantee you'll feel something. And I think that's uh, at the core of what you stand for is making people feel and make them feel alive. And uh, I certainly feel alive when I watch those videos. So thanks for coming in to my little journey and in my little circle. Uh, but if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where are the best places to point them to for that? Theskindeep.com, theskindeep.com. And then all our social media tags are basically the skin deep. So we're on YouTube. We have the long forum conversations and then TikTok and Instagram. Skin deep. And then I have my personal site, topazadesis.com. But really, you know, all the products and card games, we've been talking about the books and, the videos, the skindeep.com or all the social media feeds. Just look at the skin deep. Awesome. Uh, you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, Twitter and LinkedIn are the other places you can find me at Brian Levinson. Topaz, this was a blast. Again, the audio. Yeah. I hope everyone appreciates the audio. Spectacular. <laughs> and uh, no internet cuts. And yeah. uh, the internet gods are working in mexico and in washington dc so thank you internet gods and uh man what thank a great you. conversation and and yeah. i appreciate your your values and i appreciate your wisdom and i appreciate you sharing 
uh, great questions with the world and can't wait to play. I can't wait to yeah. play the game let, and let me know and play, and play with the people. Close Brian, to this is awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your presence, man. You're one of the, my, I've been doing a lot of podcasts. This is, this, I really, really enjoyed doing it with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode. Jam. Asking things that are not usually connected is a nice way to elevate the question. The other flip side, not flip side, I should say, but another component is putting yourself in the other person's shoes or them in yours. So what do you think is the hardest thing being your friend? So now you're thinking, I got to put myself in my friend's shoes and look at myself. You're putting yourself, that question puts you in other people's shoes. What do you think is my biggest challenge? Now that puts you in my shoes and you have to look at my world through my eyes and you're saying, what's probably his biggest challenge? But you're in my shoes. So putting in the, asking a question, having, having a question, posing a question that puts people in each other's shoes is really helpful, creating empathy and connection.